Well, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 356, and we are wrapping up a series that we've been doing for several weeks now called Reverse Engineering Success. Our guest today is a friend of EXO, Anthony Oberti. He's been with us on death hikes, as you'll hear about, and is just a passionate, regular hunter who happens to be able to get in the mountains a ton and chases deer and elk regularly. We speak with Anthony about a very specific elk hunt that he had, and as many of these hunts in this series have gone, things didn't go according to plan, but in the end, success was found, and we reverse engineer the decisions and key moments that led to that success so that you and I can learn from these stories. I hope you've enjoyed these series of episodes, guys. As always, if you have anything for us, feel free to send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. If you have a listener question you want to share for a future Monday Minute question and answer episode, look for the link in the show description that says leave a message, and we'd love to hear from you. Guys, as this episode is released, it is August of 2022, just days and weeks away from hunts for many of us. Oh man, so exciting. I hope you guys enjoy all the time out in the field this year. Be sure to stay in touch. Let us know how it goes. But right now, let's dive into this conversation with Anthony. Well, Anthony, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. How are you, man? Great, man. How are you guys? Good. Is this the first time we've had him on here? That's what I was going to say. I know we've yeah. talked to you, I think maybe only for like a death hike segment yeah. recap or something, okay. right? We did a death hike after the bear hunt last year. We did like, he had like five or six guys picked up. He did a segment on each of them. Oh, a small right. Cool. Yeah. I, it's funny because just before this, I was like, I know Anthony's been on the podcast and then I went to go see what episode it was. And I was like, I can't find anything like an actual podcast <laughs> episode with you. Yeah. Long overdue, my man. That's cool. I'm excited. We were just talking about you yesterday. Yesterday, yeah. Or was that the Monday minute? No, what was that? No, it's uh we were recording it was a, a pre-hunt with a listener, Steve. I don't know when that's gonna oh, come out. Oh, this that's one right. Yeah. May come out first. But yeah, Anthony, you were you came up yesterday in a conversation. We we're talking about the the mus the muscly guys um uh, in general <laughs> struggling on the death hike. Um, but then you're the exception. You're there. the exception, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. and let's not forget Travis Smith, he's extra muscle. Yeah, so. that's true. But both of you guys are, um, uh, well, I think, I mean, you, we mentioned it cause after the first hundred mile or right, you're like, I need to change how I approach these and, and really mm-hmm. started getting after the, the getting the miles in prior. Cause there's just, you can't, you can't replace that. No, I, you know, and I, and I think that it, the route, you know, if it's like all trail versus off trail versus how much you are carrying and weight, I kind of factor that into my training, but I think this year I've got it pretty well i am i know i've got it dialed so um yeah it it's fun yeah i like i like to, I, I like getting ready for these things it's something a goal in mind and keeps you accountable so it's awesome that's like i think i'm going to continue doing the death hike forever just because it gives me something to train for and shoot for right versus like oh hunting seasons in september i can kind of slack off all summer long and you know pick yeah. it up in in july or august yeah yeah, I totally agree. As long as there's never a mutiny and guys take you out. So <laughs> it's always on the table. <laughs> Steve may keep doing a death hike, but it's going to boycott. Like, screw you, Steve. Go by yourself. It's a true death hike then. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess some context, Anthony, a quick uh, introduction for listeners who you are, where, what you up to, what you do professionally, that type of thing quick. So 46 years old, live here in the Boise area. I'm a chiropractor now, almost 20 years. Um, been an avid outdoorsman my entire life. Um, at eight years old, I was doing a lot of upland game, you know, bird and, and fishing um, at a super young age and got heavily into snowmobiling and did some racing and did like movie type stuff for a long time. So I was really involved in that. And then I did some, you know, big game hunting a little bit as a kid, like just pig and deer, not too much. And then about seven years ago, Dione, um, he got me hooked and he took me on my first, Oh, if you want to call it true backcountry hunt. Well, it was, that was a good one. That was a hard pack out. And, um, I was instantaneously addicted. So, I mean, I love the mountains, whether it's, you know, it's always been dirt bikes and snowmobiles, but now hunting is just, Oh man, it consumes a lot of my, my thoughts and yeah, I love it. So especially deer, I'm not as big into elk. They're just harder to carry out by yourself, but uh, yeah, so that's it. And got three young boys and now they're coming to age where my oldest has started hunting last year and now I'm getting more involved with them. And it's just, it's just awesome. It's so cool. So yeah, every mountain yeah. I'm every week and I'm, if I'm not in the woods, something's wrong. <laughs> Yeah. You certainly get out a lot and you're, uh, I like it. You're analytical. Like you're kind of like Steve and I, you're always like trying new things and seeing what's out there. And so it's fun to have conversations with you on that stuff too. Yeah. With the 37 pairs of boots in my closet, that would, um, <laughs> you could say that and that's Steve's fault. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you said somewhat preferred deer over elk, but today we're going to dive in uh, to an elk story and do this whole idea of kind of reverse engineering this elk hunt, um, you know, which is something as listeners have heard, we, we haven't really, uh, tried to tackle hunts in this manner. And this all came about really because of Steve and I's bear hunt this past spring and just kind of mentioned casually, like, as we, we sat down, we ended up spotting the bear that I ended up killing later. It's like, man, if we were, if we would have sat down here three minutes later, we wouldn't have saw this bear. Right. Um, and if we would have sat there for two hours, we would have saw him, but we wouldn't have saw him immediately like we did when we sat down and, um, it just got us thinking on like, man, there's all these moments in a hunt where whether it's something like that, that you don't control, or there's certain decisions you make that you do control, it ultimately influences the outcome of a hunt in a way. Um, and so, yeah, I'd love to like kind of work backwards on this elk hunt that you and I have uh, chatted about discussing today. Sure. And kind of work backwards. So I guess first though, for context, what was the specific hunt? I mean, in terms of what year, um, species, which we mentioned was elk weapon, kind of the, the basic primer on what this hunt is. Yeah. So this, this hunt was last year. It was an elk hunt rifle hunt. Um, and I had drawn, drawn into a few years prior, um, and was successful on both, but I went into both of them with completely different goals and expectations in both cases i wanted to do it alone and then pretty much did but um the first year was a kind of a rodeo and it worked out but you know a few years later i draw that tag and i came back into this season or this last fall with just different expectations or or desires so um definitely going after a more i wanted a more mature animal i knew they were in there 
So um, just different, different goals. And in the end, it worked out. So yeah, there's tons of variables that I think influence the outcome. And there's even tons of variables before the hunt even starts that would influence the outcome from where you want to hunt and, and why and you want to go by yourself and how you're going to get there and all the logistics. So I'd kind of had my mind set on this unit for, for years, just cause I simply love the area, but there's also good animals in there. So I was pretty excited to, to get that tag and, and it worked out really well. So that first hunt, did you, you do you feel like you didn't uh, get what you wanted out of this draw? I mean, you kind of mentioned basically, it sounds like raising your expectations on, you know, age class or trophy quality. So the first time I drew it, I had killed some elk in the past, but no decent bulls at all. No, no, no bulls period. So I just wanted the first halfway mature five or six point bull I saw. I wanted to shoot and I'd scouted the area and found plenty of animals and never seen another human in there. And I was back in there quite a ways and, and I, and I got it done. So I killed up a little five point and I was super, super happy. And I did it by myself and I was happy about that, but how that all went down was, like I said, that was definitely a rodeo with some problems with my scope bumping it and yeah, running out of ammunition and wolves and mountain lions and it was just a disaster but in the end i wouldn't change it for anything in the world but yeah going back into this year i'm like okay well i kind of you know pop my cherry on that one so let's let's go you know let's try and be a little bit more patient and yeah i passed 11 bulls the first day and five the next day until i found this one that i ended up taking wow those are those are good numbers yeah well and you know, I had a, about a five days set aside and that's always another thing is trying to arrange my schedule. It's hard to take a lot of time off. I just hate leaving my office. I mean, I wish I could take three months off. That'd be awesome, but I'd probably come home to crickets. So, you know, trying to get this done in five days and then my son's football season's in there. I do not like to miss his game. So, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to give it about, I think it was three full days you know, of being patient and then I can always come back and hunt the unit. It's not super far from my house, but you know, then I kind of had a drop dead time. Like, okay, if I don't kill something by this time, I need to get out of here. Otherwise I'm not going to get this animal out by myself. So yeah, the first day was pretty easy. Cause I was just seeing fives and little sixes. I'm like, no. And then I kind of went to a different area and few miles from camp and I found five right away and they were, man, they were making noise and I was bugling back at them and, oh, it was, it was really cool. And then I spotted the, the one I ended up killing that was a seven by seven and it was three thirty-five or something like that. And the second I saw him in my binoculars, I'm like that, that animals of a different age class. So that's when I made the move on him and ended up having to wait him out for, I spotted him at 9am and he went into the trees. I was like a thousand yards. I'm like, that's way too far. So I got into about 600 and he bedded up. Um, so I, I, that was like at nine 15 or nine o'clock. So I waited till seven 15 sat right there underneath that tree. And at the very last light, as I was getting ready to leave, he came out and I got him. Dang. Let's zoom in on that for now. So you spot this bull, mm-hmm. you know, that it's the one you want. You've 
pass a dozen other bulls at this point. Correct. You mentioned the high level of what happened. He goes into the trees, you wait, he comes out, boom, done. But like, let's break that apart. Yeah. Mindset decisions. Did you ever wrestle with trying to force the situation or close the distance or anything else like that? So basically what's that short story you just gave? Like, let's dive deep into that. You spot this bowl. What's going through your head? What decisions are you making? What are you weighing in terms of next actions? So what was nice is that I'd seen enough bulls between, you know, regardless of my spotting scope or binoculars, when I saw him, like there was no doubt. Like, I think you see an animal you're like, okay, he's a shooter. I don't know how big he is, how many points he has. I don't care. I like him. He's big. So when I ranged him, you know, I'm about a thousand yards and I don't mind shooting rocks at a thousand, but I don't, I don't, I'm not going to shoot an animal that far. And so my first point was I'm, I'm watching him feed across this hillside. So, okay, where am I going to go to get to him? So, and I hadn't been in this particular area and last year it was dry. So water sources that I'd found in the past were not the same. And I, ironically, that was the only spot I had found water, um, in that, that weekend. So I had to drop down this mountain and then climb up about, oh, five or 600 feet and just looking, you know, I'm looking at my Onyx trying to figure out like, what's a good vantage point to get to them and have a, a clear shooting lane or, you know, reasonable distance. And it took me about, uh, I don't know, 25 or 30 minutes to run up this hill. And when I got to him, he had, I'd lost him. So, cause I, I lost sight of him and I dropped down to climb back up. So, but these, these bulls are making noise everywhere i mean i think it was early october and I mean, it was really cool because every single time i bugled they bugled back and i'm by no means a professional elk caller but good enough to fool them and um so i i knew they were that some of these bulls at least were in the trees so they were bedded and there was nothing i could do at that point i wasn't going to go I didn't want to rush it and get up into the trees where they were. Cause I knew I would, I would, you know, push them out of there. So essentially what I found was there was two openings from the trees. There was one to the right, one to the left. And I, I assumed that evening he was going to feed out into one of those. And I'd had everything ranged. It was all about 600 yards. You know, I picked out different trees and rocks in case, depending on what route he came had everything set, you know, the first thing I'm doing is getting my ballistics all figured out on my, um, you know, the app on my phone to make sure that I'm dialed this time on my, my scope. I set up even like a little shooting bench, if you would. So I'm clearing out rocks and dirt and sage brush. So I have a nice steady level place to shoot from knocking branches off trees, knowing that I've, that I've got some time. And like I said, that was about nine o'clock. Um, 9am, right? 9am. Yeah. 9am. So I, let's see. I, they were, some of the bulls were calling and I would call back to them and around noon I had one. Why were you, why were you calling back? I'm just like, I don't mean that as like a, it's not like a jerk type comment. So, so short, but well, that, that's a really good question, Mark. And I don't know either. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's still fun to hear, right? Well, like, interact with it, them. it yeah. is really cool. And I kind of wanted to hear like, okay, how bad do I suck at bugling? Well, 
they keep calling back. So I must be doing something right. And then one kept coming in and he was coming closer and closer. And I wasn't sure like, God, do I try and keep calling them in or what? And he just kept sucking in. And the best I could tell, he was about a hundred yards below me, but I could not see. And of course, I don't know what bullet is. And what happened was there was a water source there. So I think some of them had, were getting feed or water in there. And then I stopped calling because it wasn't doing me any good. Um, so I waited it out and, oh, I was underneath this tree all day. And it was funny. I kept having to like shift because the shade kept changing. I'm like, I don't want to sit in the sun all day long. Then I had to keep, keep moving my shooting spot as well um, and get branches out of the way to make sure I was set for when he came out. So that afternoon, about 430, some bulls started feeding out into the area I thought they would. And it wasn't the bull I wanted. Um, and then it happened, you know, it was continuing to happen like five 30 and at six. And I think it gets dark about seven 40. Uh, I don't remember seven 30, eight o'clock that time of year. Um, and I was about two miles from my camp, which was three or four miles from my dirt bike, which was 10 miles from my truck. So I, I was back in there a little ways. So I keep waiting and all these other bulls come out kind of like I expected. And he never popped out. I'm like, damn, uh, he, he gave me the slip. So finally it's, it's getting towards the end of the day here. And I've got a little bit of a, a hike back. So I have everything perfectly set up. So I start grabbing my stuff and get my pack. And I just turn around just to look at the hillside one last time. And there he is. And the hillside is littered with animals. There's like four or five cows, a couple smaller bulls, and there's him. And this time he's at like 425. So now I'm like, crap, I got to get my dope chart out really quick and get this all figured out, rearrange them. And threw my rifle down and shot, stunned him, shot again. He started to buckle and then down he went. So it happened super, super fast. Like everybody always says, it's like, I've been sitting here for, 10 hours, totally ready to go off and on with naps, contemplating the world, you know, just wasting time <laughs> for 10 hours um, and all ready to go. And then I have to rush this. I'm not going to say rush the shot, but, you know, do it really quick in a way I wasn't set up for. And that was it. And I didn't know how big he was. And I'd have to look at my phone what time it was some sometime after seven. I'm like, holy crap, that just happened. Um, so I walk up to him and then I realized, oh yeah, he's, he's a nice animal. Um, and the sun's going down, starting to, and I'm like, wow, this is, I got my work cut out for me. And the other part of the problem was I'd eaten most of my food and didn't have a whole lot of water left. And, um, yeah, that was the beginning of a really long night, which I didn't get back to camp till a little after 5am and I was smoked. If we go back to you kind of like packing up before this shot ended up happening and armchair quarterback this thing, which is always easier. Would you like in that situation again, have packed up to try and get that extra, you know, 30 minute jump? Or would you say, Hey man, if I'm in this situation again, I'm just going to like flat out sit until the end of shooting light ready. And then, you know, kind of gather my gear and what have you. No, that's a good question. And I think you're right about that. It, if it's still legal shooting time, like there's it's, it was probably foolish of me to pack up. 
you know, what had happened is all the bulls had fed out earlier and I'm thinking, okay, well, they're all done. I haven't seen anything in 30, 40 minutes and I've got a long hike back to camp by myself. So I might as well get going, which was dumb because my headlight was going to get turned on in 30 minutes regardless. So I should have just waited. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, with any shot, I really like to have a good, awesome, steady backrest off a, off a bipod. So I would have rather have not rushed it, you know, at 400 yards, it's kind of a close shot for what I'm used to shooting at or practicing at. So that was, that was fine. But, you know, I mean, your heart is always through the roof and at least for me in a situation like that. So I, I wish I would have definitely waited it out till it was just pitch dark. So, um, that way I didn't have to, to rush it as much, but fortunately it, it did, it did work out. And that's when the real work began. I mean, I think I'm, I'm right there with you. Like, I think there's something kind of like something in us of like, you know, Oh, this isn't going to happen. I might as well pack up. You know, there's like this, um, the ease, like the comfort of being ready to go and hiking Mm -hmm. before dark. But then, yeah, it's like easy to say now sitting here in the comfort of our homes of like, as you said, you're going to be hiking in the dark anyway. (laughs) Why not just like, yeah, start hiking when it's dark. Right. But I'm, you know, in the moment I'm kind of right there with you and may have made the exact same decision you did. I agree. And, and I mean, same thing happened with my deer last year. I killed him at very last light. So, and uh, the whole pack out was in the dark. And a lot of these animals, it seems like they do come out last light. And I think we all know that. So shame on me for, I'd been patient for two days. I should have been a little bit more patient for 30 minutes, you know, and then the thing starts swirling in your head, like, gosh, dang it. Like, do I come back here tomorrow? Do I try and find a different area, a different bull? You know, do I settle on a smaller animal? And that was one of the biggest struggles was being patient. And our good buddy, Dione is always in my head about like, you just need to slow down and be patient. And he says, you're never going to kill a big animal if you shoot the, the little ones first, which is true. And I mean, it depends on your expectations of the hunt. And sometimes I don't care, but in this situation, I did want to wait. And yeah, I think the patience thing was the hardest part for me. Cause I just get, I get excited when I see animals and man, it's, it's just awesome. I mean, even scouting, it's awesome, but when you're out there hunting and then I like shooting my rifle a lot. So it's sometimes harder to, to hold back. So I mean, I don't like, have well, that problem an at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, there's an animal and like, I know I can hit them from this distance. Like, yeah, it's, it's just really hard. I, yeah. So, um, what led you to, um, what, what made the decision to sit back and, and wait for him to come out just how the terrain laid out. I mean, I feel like there's probably certainly a good portion of people that that bulls in those trees. I'm going to go kill it now. Yeah, I was. So the way the hill laid out, I was below him. Oh, halfway down the mountain. And this area, because when I did pack him out, I'm trying to see like, gosh, you can't even see the area from the top of the ridge. So I was pretty secluded, but it was almost all timber. There was a line of timber going up to where I believed he was. And I didn't think that I would be able to sneak up on him. And there yeah. were so many other animals in the area. I was pretty certain that if I went in there to try and get him first, I was going to bust him out of there. So, and the wind was, and eh, wind wasn't really too much of a factor, but I just assumed like this, these animals are going to feed in the evening sometime tonight. Like I, it seems like morning and evenings when they're out feeding in the open. And that's where I found them that morning. 
And based off of what the animals were doing the day before all the other bulls I'd seen, yeah, they were feeding morning and feeding late. So I assumed he was going to come out that evening sometime. And I thought keeping my distance was the, the best solution. Um, cause I was afraid I would, I would push him out of there and I didn't want to ruin that. So I thought it was a better decision just to sit here and be patient. I, I'm going to try and do something that's hard for me to do and be patient on him and, and hope that he feeds out. And I was right about that part. It just, I didn't expect him to come at the very last light because all the other younger bulls were coming out sooner. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, patience, obviously that's, it's, you know, I struggle with it. You, you seem to struggle with it too, but you made the right call and it's not easy to sit, like know that you're going to sit there for 10 hours in one spot. That's especially when you're by yourself. Like I, I'm probably more like, oh, I'll get up and hike, you know, when I'm by myself, because you just get bored too easily. Sure. What, um, I think part of this reverse engineering success or, or continued su- success is learning from mistakes in the past. So what did you mm-hmm. pick up from that prior hunt that you talked about that, where you, you know, emptied your magazine? Oh, um, what, yeah. <laughs> what are some of the things that it sounded like that you learned from that hunt that you then applied to this hunt? Um, well, I think there was two factors. One was my expectations and, and my, I don't want to say goals, but that's kind of what it was. The first hunt I had low goals and expect, well, I had high expectations, but my goal was low. I just first halfway mature animal. I wanted to take them and do it on my own. And I, I felt good about that. Um, and on that one, what had gone wrong was I had seen, I had found bulls everywhere in this area and I'd never seen another person in there. And I went in the night before I, you know, worked my normal day. Oh, I didn't start hiking till midnight and I didn't set camp till one or two and it had been snowing and it was, it was cold that year and there was already snow on the ground, but I'm like, no problem. I'm going to get 5am or 6am, whatever. I'm going to go right down this basin where those bulls were going crazy. And as I did that first light, there was a teepee there. Um, and I'm like, you've just got to be kidding me. And my heart was, I was devastated because all my plans had gone out the window. So I started walking back up the mountain. Like, I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. And, oh, I ended up cutting some tracks and that's when I followed those and, and found that other bull. But I think one of the things I definitely learned from that was that in scouting, definitely having different areas, trying to figure out the patterns and habits of these animals. And that that's where I ended up killing that bull was another spot. But, you know, I think you've got to have more than plan a and plan B. You need to have plan C and plan D when you're in there for an extended amount of time. I don't think you should put all your eggs in one basket. So I was just devastated by the fact that I, there was another hunter in there. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I, I thought I was the only person in here, which maybe is, uh, you know, foolish on my part. Um, but yeah, d- having some other options to fall back on was something that helped. And that's what I carried into this next hunt. So I hadn't where I killed this, the, this bull last year wasn't my primary spot. It's just something I'd kind of learned from the day before. And I still had other areas I was going to go to, but I think having, you know, some different areas and, and I'm big into scouting. I think it's really important. Um, and I really enjoy it just being out there. So knowing the patterns and habits of the animals was, was helpful. And that's what led me to be successful on that first bull hunt, even though everything went wrong. Um, 
but yeah, I think knowing that unit and even when I do our practice hikes for, for the death hike, uh, I've since then started hiking in the areas that I hunt and scout just to better learn them rather than going in the foothills outside of town. So that was, that was definitely beneficial as well. And, and, and it definitely worked out for this last hunt. Cause I'd learned a, a lot more about it after the first, the first tag and hunt I had. How about, um, just the specifics of shooting your rifle it sounded like on, oh, on this last hunt, you were very methodical about building a shooting platform and how you were going to shoot, you know, with the rear support uh, and all that. Did you have that same approach on the first hunt or did you learn from that? Well, I learned a lot from that. I don't know how much of it I want to admit on the air. <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, I shoot a lot, a few hundred rounds a year and I'm, I'm sure just like you guys do. And what happened on that one, the first one was, it was a, I had a pretty stable rest, but that was the first bull I'd ever had in my scope and pulled the trigger on. So I was pretty jazzed and he wasn't that far. I four or 500 yards. And what happened was when I pulled up my chart, rather than looking at the MOA to dial my scope to, I somehow caught the wind or I looked at the wrong number and I was supposed to dial to like three or four and I dialed to like seven or eight. And I didn't realize that obviously. And it took me a few shots to realize like, man, I don't like, is this bull just eating bullets or what is going on here? <laughs> and then he starts going further, <laughs> you know, he's out to like 600 or something. And then I definitely saw that I hit him. So like he actually ran into my dope chart, which is not a good thing. <laughs> and I'm just, it's a Jeez. hot mess. And I eventually am almost out of ammo. And I'm like, okay, this is, this isn't good. And he's down and I put a couple in him at uh, like a hundred yards and he's slowly expiring. And I'm now out of bullets. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to wait this one out. I mean, he's, he's going to die. I don't want to go in there and push him and give him a shot of adrenaline. So he runs off a mile and I was sitting there waiting and this guy walks up to me and says, Hey, how's it going? And I'm like, what the heck? Like I did not expect to see a human. And it was the guy that was in the teepee and he had a rifle in his hand. I'm like, you got bullets in there. He's like, yeah, I'm like I need your gun. So I finished the elk then. And long story short, <laughs> the guy I knew his father used to build snowmobile motors for me. I mean, just the smallest, you know, small world. And he helped me break it down and I carried it out. And he actually drew the tag this last year. We shared a camp. So, um, yeah. And that night was a big mess because I'm out of bullets. I'm by myself. You know, I've got what a front and rear quarter. I don't know what I have with me. There's mountain lion tracks all over my camp. There's wolves making noise. And I'm just like, Oh, hope they don't come eat me tonight. So, um, did that guy come over your way when he heard world war three, like, was he coming to check on you? Kind of how he described it. He said, okay. he's like, well, I heard some shooting. I'm like, yeah, I bet you did. That's um, an understatement. Yeah. He's like, yeah, Sounds like there's a lot going on over here. I'm like, yeah, yeah, there kind of was. And I didn't realize it till like the last few bullets that I had left. I'm like, oh my God, I'm a few hundred yards off here. Um, so yeah, and he was actually, cause I'd heard him shoot earlier in the day, which just, I was like, this is like the worst day ever. Like this guy ruined my hunt. <laughs> and um, he was packing out his bull. So he helped me break mine down. And then he was headed out a different direction and, he said the same thing He's like, I've never seen anybody else in here. So we've actually since become friends and it's kind of a really cool story. 
But um, yeah, so, you know, what I'd learned since then, though, Steve, was double. First thing is slow down. So and that's mm-hmm. that's hard one for me because um, I get so darn excited. And it's funny because I saw it with my my boy turned 10 this year and he shot his first deer. And I don't know who was more excited and like just like, OK, Dominic, we've got to slow down. And, you know, it, if the if the animal's sitting there undisturbed, doesn't know we're there, we've got time. And I think we get so excited, at least I do, and, and rush it. Just need to need to slow down. If it's if that animal jumps and, you know, you're not ready, then I think you need to let it go until you have a, a good rest and you're ready to shoot. But, um, yeah, I will never, ever screw up what I dial my scope to again, because I, I definitely learned on that one. Um, and you know, now I double check everything and now I've got a, a range finder that you actually hit the button. It tells you what to dial your, <clears throat> your rifle to, which I think is, is helpful. Um, but yeah, that, that one mistake, I'd like to think I never do that again. So I just double and triple check everything. And now I kind of have my, <clears throat> you know, my ballistic chart halfway memorized, you know, I know it. 300 yards it's three moa or, or whatever so mm-hmm. but the first and that first elk i was clearly not thinking well i wasn't thinking at all <laughs> so jumping back to this past year's hunt we were discussing and um you take this shot kind of near last light i'm sure some listeners hearing this because i feel like we get a ton of questions on on solo elk hunting in general but you describing how far you're in there, you know, both in terms of how far away you are from camp plus Mm -hmm. camps where that's at in relation to your motorcycle in relation to your truck and you're, you're out there, right. Solo last flight. Did you, do you have any reservations about even putting a big bull down like that? Like at the end of the day when you're by yourself or do you just feel like you've had enough experience, both breaking down animals in general, plus perhaps dealing with breaking them down in the dark or packing out in the dark that you, you didn't have too many reservations on that. I didn't have a reservation at all about it. And I think that part of that comes honestly from, from our death hike. So granted, we're not carrying animals out hundred miles, but I kind of have an idea of what I'm physically capable of. And to be honest, like that's what we think in reality, we're capable of even more than that. Our brain just wants to shut off and protect us. But my thoughts were, I want to take this animal and I'll figure out how to get him out of here. I, yeah, I mean, if it was 20 miles, well, that might be different, but it ended up being a little over five mile hike out. Cause I went to the top and followed the ridge line out. So, I mean, yeah, five, five miles, some off trail with a hundred and plus pounds is, is tough, but that's what we trained for. At least that's what I trained for. So, no, it never crossed my mind at all. And the dark thing doesn't bother me. And I hate to say it again, but I, I kind of bring that back to one of our death hikes where the bear hunt we did when Steve started making us hike at midnight without headlamps. And, you know, I think getting comfortable, well, getting, getting comfortable, being uncomfortable is, is a good thing. Um, but being comfortable hiking in the, in the night, in the dark. Um, I kind of like it actually, it's peaceful and I'm not worried about anything. I got a headlamp and I got a rifle, like what, you know, I'm not worried about anything happening there. So there was really no reservation. Like I knew I could, 
physically do it. It might take a while. I didn't expect it to take eight or nine hours, but whatever. So, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't really have a limit per se. I mean, maybe I should put a limit on elk, but the flip side of that is I know it's going to take more than one trip on deer. I, I'd like to do all those in one trip and I don't have, oh, maybe 10 miles might be my limit. I, I don't know. I mean, if it's the right animal, the right situation, I don't put a cap on that. Um, you know, you just got to figure out how far you can go. And I think you need to know your body and your capabilities. And that's different for every person. I think you also need to know your gear and what you have available to you, your food and water, because that did become a problem on the hike out where I actually did run out of water and food. Um, but at the end of it, I didn't die. So I was fine. Just, you know, made for a long day or for a long 48 hours getting That's them out. That's always the joke, right? But did you die? Nope. That's right. Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> Live to tell the story on a podcast. Yeah. You know, and I think there's maybe I'm the sick way of thinking about it, but there's something special of, that I'll remember about those types of hunts where it was grueling. And every time I look at, you know, I have a Euro mountain above my fireplace of that, that elk and. Every time I'm sitting there drinking coffee or sipping whiskey, sip, you know, looking at them, it's like, it just brings back a warm, cozy, awesome feeling. And sometimes the more something like that sucks, the better it is. Yeah. 100%. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, you gotta be smart. I, I don't think you should be foolish and your experience and uh, in the mountains is important, but I mean, I've hiked hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of miles in the last five, seven years. So and half the time I do that for fun with a bag of concrete, you know, just to get used to that. So yeah, there was, there was no doubts in my mind that I was pulling the trigger on him. I think what you like mentioned there about hiking in the dark and how you can tie that to the specific experience of a death hike. What I'm trying to highlight here is not that you have to do a death hike, but just no. how much our I don't even know if I want to use the word fear so much as like maybe anxiety or worry is it's about the unknown. And so as, as soon as you expose yourself to that, and now it's known, like, I know what it's like to hike through the dark, through the night. It's like, okay, well that, that removes the anxiety that removes the fear. Cause it's now it's not an unknown. Um, you know, I think I, cause I could relate to that even with the dark. I mean, I remember the first time I was legit in the mountains away from trails, away from camp and like had to hike back in the dark. And I had some anxiety about that at that point, but having done that then and a bunch since it's like, I don't really have that anxiety anymore. Right. And it's the same, you could relate that to, you know, us mentioning like doing water crossings a bunch, like a lot of times guys are anxious about that. Cause it's unknown, you know, that what if, what if, what if, and then, okay. Yeah. It's like expose yourself to it, do it. And then you just build confidence and some of that anxiety goes away. You still need to make smart decisions, but you just don't have that level of, yeah, it, it's the unknown that causes the anxiety. Yeah. You know, and I, I took all three of my, I have three young boys and I took them bear hunting this last weekend. And it's funny because I could see their reservation with the dark and I personally think it's good to throw headlamps on them at a young age and let them be outside and realize like, look guys, there's, there's nothing different right now versus when the sun's out. Well, minus the sun not being out, but I mean, everything's the same. Like those fears are kind of in your head. 
you know, you're not going to have a monster attack you just in the middle of the night for no reason, especially when you have a blaring light, you know, light on your head. And I think for, for the hunting, you know, situation here, my personal opinion is the first time you do something like that. Well, I don't think the first time you do something like that should be in a situation like that. Hopefully you've prepared, whether it's a, a death hike or a hunt or whatever, where when you're faced with this challenge, that's not the first time you've done it. That would scare me. That would be a concern where it's like, oh, geez, I've never done this. I don't know how it's going to happen. So, I mean, I think preparation is really key. I could see how it might be difficult for some listeners in the Midwest and East Coast that don't have the mountains at their disposal to do these things. But I mean, I'm sure you do, Mark. I know you're out running in the dark. And I think it's good to do all these things ahead of time before going into an event like that. And that's why I have no concern hunting by myself. And between that and having an in reach, I've hunted by a week by myself. And I don't, I'm not worried about it. I can communicate with my family. I'm physically prepared. I've done all this before and let's go. If you think about this hunt, were there any other call them like decisive moments or decisions that you made that led you to this outcome that come to mind? I mean, I, maybe before the hunt, I mean, picking the unit I thought was kind of a big deal. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are different units in the state, especially in the desert that produce bigger animals. But part of it for me is, yeah, the hunt's part of it, but the whole experience of it. I mean, I could sit in glass all day for 12 hours and not see any animals, but I'm, I'm staring at mountains that just, I don't want to say speak to you, but I don't know. Like they just, it's, it's heaven. And I just, I love being out there. So that just, that's half the experience. Um, I mean, of course, there's all the, your gear and equipment that goes into it, making sure that you're prepared. And just like both of you, I'm a gear junkie and I overanalyze every single piece of equipment from my socks to my, I don't know, to my rangefinder. you know I mean? just, I, and I really enjoy that, but I think the big one was just the expectations and having some level of patience, um, not some level, but a tremendous amount of patience and being prepared to you know, when the time comes, you know, shoot in an awkward position or something that you're not used to. I mean, we're not shooting off a bench out there. So I think you have to do all the preparation before. So when the moment comes, you're ready and it's not the first time you've done it. Um, and I sure, I think I'm sure there was some level of luck that, that came out of this, but, you know, knowing the history of this area and the animals that are in there, I I knew they were in there just a matter of finding them and and in this case, trying to find water was really hard last year. That was, I wasn't surprised after I found them when I did see the amount of water right there in this one area that you couldn't see from anywhere on the mountain. So I would say scouting is, is vital, especially, I mean, with what little I know about elk, you know, finding some sort of water source was really, really key there as well. Once you found that water source, were you able to translate that back to a map or any sort of source that huh. like would have anticipated that? Or was this truly just like, nope, never would have found this, just had to be there and, and find it? You know, that's a really good question. I, cause I saw this just a few weeks ago, I was up there hiking and bear hunting and finding water sources that I didn't know existed. And what I like to do is I take a photo of them. I mark it on my Onyx. 
and, and then, you know, mark that location. <clears throat> and then I go back to Onyx later and or Google Earth. And I kind of asked myself, like, why didn't I know this water was there? Because it doesn't show up on the map. And I'm trying to see if there's a correlation between water sources and what it looks like on Onyx or what it looks like on Google Earth. Because maps sometimes lie. So, yeah, I would have, I think I just sheer luck that I stumbled across that one. Um, but it makes me look at maps a little differently, knowing that, okay, this is what it looks like in reality. So are there more areas like this on Onyx or Google Earth that look like this? Um, and that's been beneficial because I, I like studying maps and when, you know, laying in bed or board or something. And yeah, that was, that was definitely helpful because I didn't, you know, you see one little blue line on Onyx, like, oh, that's nothing. But in, in this case, that was a, about one of the only water sources in there. Have you found any correlations there, Steve, or any like call it non-indicated on map water sources or anything you look for in that regard? Not really. I, I, I on my sheep hunt last year in Frank church, I did similar like really um, between Google Earth and Onyx went into the aerial imagery and pre going into the hunt, I was just like looking for green grass. Um, yeah. I was just like, here's a patch of green grass and um, there might be water here. So that specifically one spot, I was walking up this ridge and it was like 500 feet off the side. And um, I dropped down there and, and sure enough, there was, it was like marshy and wet, but nowhere I could get water from. Um, but that's about the only thing I've, just kind of lay out looking for that green grass. If the, if the imagery you can tell is usually they try to do that in the summertime, right. When uh, there's no snow and um, uh, if it's green there, that's usually indicated and there's some water. So, and then uh, sometimes I guess the old school in um, the USGS quad sheets will show like springs that don't pop up on any newer maps. Uh, I've, I've have referred to those in the past. Uh, inside of the um, Earthmate Garmin's Earthmate app, you can download quad sheets in there, and, and they will have stuff. You just got to cross-reference a bunch, like aer aerial imagery here, top uh, topo maps here, quad sheets here, uh, and mm -hmm. pile all the resources together to to find water. And then and then just you know, sometimes there's just spring. Like um, uh, like you said, Anthony, like wherever, even if I don't think I'll ever be back in that area, if I find yeah. water, I'm marking it. Um, cause if I ever come back, you know, it could be one year later or 10 years later, um, knowing, I mean, water is the, the life of a backcountry hunt. If you've got no water, you can only last so many days out there. And, uh, so having those water sources marked and over time, you know, you kind of build up a nice library of where stuff's at. That bring, that makes me think of a couple of things. Cause sometimes I'll look at Onyx Well, I look at Onyx all the time and from a certain zoom level, you don't see something, but then you zoom in even further. And then they'll say, oh, there's a spring here or there's a spring there. So I think playing with that. And then what I've have done, and I'll find water sources trying to see, you know, determine how relevant they are in the fall. And if you zoom in, especially on Google Earth, you can see those game tracks going to it. Some have a ton of game tracks and some don't. And I, you know, I can't say with certainty that there's a correlation between animals being there or not, but those game tracks didn't, didn't show up by themselves. The other part of that was where I was hunting this year, there is no water source on top of the mountain where I was hunting. And again, I knew that from scouting. So I had brought in a few liters and stashed it prior to the actual hunt, knowing that I didn't want to drop 3000 or 2000 feet down the other side to get water every two days. So I think that that scouting is just important for so many reasons from 
finding a flat spot to camp to where you're going to glass. I mean, the first time I go into new country all the time, you're not just going in there and glassing right away. It's like, okay, where the hell am I going to set up my tent or tarp and where's water and where's a good glassing point? And does this ridge actually allow me to see this basin? So becoming familiar with the country is really important. So you're not spinning your wheels when you're actually looking for animals. Awesome. Anthony, this is, uh, it's been good, man. I'm, um, there's a lot to pull from this and I think it's, uh, it's been helpful for me to just like zoom in on those decisions and understand the why behind it. And I'm sure it'll help listeners as well. So thanks for sharing it. You bet. I hope someone gets something positive out of it or helpful for them. <laughs> Absolutely. I think this whole series is going to be just great. Cause it's, I mean, it's so important to be reflective, right? Like you learn from that first elk hunt mistakes, what you could do better. Yeah. You applied them to the second one. Um, you know, and just over time, talk up, talk about building a library of water spots, you build a library of, um, lessons learned and just helps you become a more successful hunter year after year. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is a wrap, not only on this episode, but on the entire reverse engineering success series. Maybe we'll do more of these episodes in the future. If that's something you want more of, be sure to reach out and let us know send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com. And once again, if you have a question for a future Q&A episode, we'd love to hear from you. Look for the link in the show description that says leave a message, and you can use whatever device you're listening on right now to leave us an audio message that will answer on one of those future question and answer episodes. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.